Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus on the road ahead for equity returns and what sectors investors might turn to in light of evolving economic conditions, rising rates, and valuations. We will also touch on recent market trends, potential headwinds, and how to think about allocation within equities. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Head of Equities Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, David Lefkowitz, as well as Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors, or RBA. David, Dan, it's great to be with you both. Looking forward to hearing your current thinking on equities and diving into some of these topics with you. Yeah, thanks, Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So maybe to set the table, we can begin by hearing your macro views, and then we'll dive into some of these equity topics. And Dan, I know the U.S. economy as of late, it has been showing some signs of improvement. COVID-19 vaccine deployment is well underway. We've been hearing in recent weeks how individual states, they've been rolling back restrictions. Uh, The White House conveyed last week that they will be ramping up vaccine deployment between now and the beginning of May. So that's all good news. But as it stands today, Dan, and where do you believe the U.S. currently is in the economic cycle? Well, Dan, I think it, it, it may be possible that we're in a bit of a no-man's land between early and mid-cycle. You know, on one hand, we just saw the fastest drop-off in global growth last year in modern history, and we're only about one year into the recovery, which is quite early by historical standards. And with a lot of the world still obviously constrained by the pandemic, you know, I'm diving into this podcast from home and not from the office right now. There's clearly a lot more room to re- to recover. Uh, and with the vaccine, you know, rollout that you're talking about that's accelerating at an incredible pace, you know, there's clearly, you know, a long runway for recovery from here. Um, but also at the same time, the fact that this was a pandemic, pandemic-driven recession combined with the sheer magnitude and speed of the stimulus response, I think makes this very different than a normal cycle. Now, usually in a recession, people's incomes are plummeting. This time around, as a result of the stimulus, they literally surged. So if you look back to last April, when you know everything was shut down at the depths of the pandemic, household incomes were up 14%, which is incredibly unprecedented you know, for being the depths of the recession. And additionally, typically recessions are where the excesses of the prior cycle are cleared out, both in the economy and the markets. And, and I think it's hard to argue that that's actually what happened, you know, because of the pandemic dynamic. And in many ways, you know, much of this recovery has been more like pressing the rewind button and bringing us back to pre-pandemic, uh, pre-pandemic backdrop rather than bring us forward to where we're clearing out excesses and things like that. So I think that it, it, from that perspective, there's a bit of a mix of, of mid, uh, early, mid, and maybe you know, from a sentiment perspective, late cycle. To your point, Dan, we are coming out of an exogenous event, very difficult to draw comparisons given how unprecedented these circumstances have been. So, uh, David, from your vantage point, where do you believe the U.S. is in the economic cycle? Dan covered it pretty pretty well. I, I mean, what's so unusual about this cycle is that it, it, it's not an economic-driven cycle. It's been obviously a pandemic-driven one, as Dan, I think, very described very well. I mean, I think another interesting statistic or way to think about this is that, I mean, the the job market may be back to where it was pre-pandemic by the end of this year. So I think just underscoring Dan's earlier comments that you know, that's just incredibly fast. So it takes it takes a usually takes much longer 
for the job market to recover to pre-recession levels. I mean, we're we're going to be able to do that in a you know pretty rapid period of time, less than less than two years. And then once you get back to full employment, you know, I, I definitely think that you know you start thinking about more of a mid cycle, and you know, we could very quickly could be later cycle depending on how. Uh, you know, how quickly inflation begins to to perk up on a sustainable basis. Not, you know, we're going to have an inflation surge or at least a, a, an uptick in inflation over the next couple of months just because of the reopening dynamics. But I'm talking about more, I mean, that, that shouldn't, that should just be sort of a temporary phenomenon. I'm talking about more late cycle dynamics where you have a persistent increase in inflation because there's not enough capacity or slack left in the economy. That That's indicative of late cycle. I don't think that we're, we're there yet by any stretch, but that could happen much sooner than, than typical in a, in a normal recovery. It has been interesting to see over the past few weeks as the economy is showing signs of improvement, how we're seeing a rise in bond yields. Uh, that has indeed captured investor attention as it has in some cases delivered spouts of volatility and risk assets. I'm curious, Dan, from your vantage point, what your near to medium-term outlook is for rates and how might the recent spike in rates impact equity valuations? Dan, I think that, that six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, I think it's to, to me, it seems very likely that interest rates will be higher than they are today. Six weeks, six weeks from now, I have no idea. Well, you know, when you consider all the factors that drive interest rates, to me, it seems like the path of least resistance seems higher. And when you, when you think about you know, the supply of debt coming into the market, both in the U.S. as well as globally, it's pretty astounding. And I also think that there, you know, it's good to think that you know, it's likely – to, that inflation, as David mentioned, is also going to trend higher from here as well. Uh, but nothing moves in straight lines. So when things accelerate and everybody starts to position one way, you often get some near-term reversals. But I think the sort of medium to long-term view is that interest rates uh, will likely trend higher. What about your take on rates, David? Yeah, I, I would, again, echo what what Dan is saying. I, I, I mean, I, I do think you know, look, we, we've had a very sharp move in interest rates in a short amount of time. I mean, we went back and looked at, um, you know, the the move we've seen over the last three months. I mean, it, it ranks as as um, it, it's in the it's in the fourth percentile relative to all other rate moves. In other words, ninety six percent of all rate moves over a three month, a rolling three month window have been smaller than what we've just seen. So it's been, it's been a very rapid move in a very short amount of time. So, you know, wouldn't be surprised to see rates moving, you know, a little bit more sideways. That, that's certainly possible. But I, I think the direction of travel, I would agree with Dan, is, is higher. I mean, just, you know, some perspective here is that, you know, pre-COVID, the, the, the few years before COVID or the, about the five years before COVID, the range on treasury ten year treasuries was one and a half on the low end up to three percent on the high end. We're now just getting back to that to the low end of that range and you know given that the there's really nothing terribly different about the economy now I mean we do have more debt um, but we also have a fed that's that's a little bit more focused on generating inflation and a little bit higher inflation than maybe it was previously. Um, I mean, those are the only two differences between you know, now and, and what we saw pre-COVID. So it would make sense that we should probably be thinking about that pre-COVID range as still being reasonable 
uh, you know, that one and a half to three. So, so I, I think there's, I, I would agree with Dan. I, I do think that there's more, more to go. And then just, you know, coincidentally, I mean, just incidentally, I do think that, um, you know, you asked about valuation. I, I mean, when stocks do, I'm sorry, when rates are moving up uh, from low levels, usually stocks do fine in that environment. I mean, if, if they move quickly, you can see some volatility, um, which is which we did see, but that seems to be dying down now. Um, but from our perch, valuations still look reasonable in the context of yeah, rates that are still quite low by historical standards. David, maybe we can run with that latter point you made for a few moments. And Dan, I'm, I'm curious, historically speaking, as a refresher for our listeners, our clients, what factors tend to drive valuations lower? And from what you can gather, is there anything of those sorts on the horizon? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you ultimately, you know, the big drivers of valuations overall, I mean, you could probably put it into five uh, you know, specific categories, you know, interest rates, uh, inflation, investment taxes, transaction costs, and growth. Now, with respect to, you know, growth in interest rates, it's always a tug of war. You know, David alluded to this, you know, one of the reasons we've had higher interest rates is that it's come with higher growth. So they've sort of netted out from that perspective. Um, but in isolation, if you go through the list, you know, a lot of these things would actually argue for lower valuations, right? Interest rates, you know, I mean, higher discount rates, higher cost of capital, interest rates going higher. That's going to generally coincide with lower multiples, higher inflation. You know, there's a very, very strong relationship between inflation and P multiples. Historically, you know, those that that is likely to go higher, uh, as both David and I mentioned in, in the earlier comments. That's likely to pressure multiples. You know, investment taxes. I mean, I, you know, personally, I, 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 I'm not it's not a I don't think it's a done deal. That you know, capital gains and dividend taxes are, are are going up, but there's a chance that they are, and to the extent that they do, you know, that that should pressure multiples a little bit. Although I think maybe people might make too much of that, you know, given you know what high, you know, there's such a high percentage of invested assets out there that are actually not subject to those investment taxes uh, for various reasons, uh, and then transaction costs costs are actually a positive. You know, you continue to see fee compression. Uh, and so, and so that's sort of a, a small offset there. But I think ultimately when you put all this together, uh, it argues for high, uh, for lower multiples. Uh, from here. Well, Dan, that is an interesting point you made on tax policy. I know that's been coming up. It's been making some headlines over the past few days. Uh, David, anything you'd like to add on this? Yeah, I, I think I think Dan laid out the framework quite well. Um, you know, really, I mean, I think it's important. It's an important point that he he's bringing up that it's not just interest. I mean, interest rates obviously are important, but interest rates. It's the interaction of interest rates and growth. Uh, so the, that, that's a, a really important point that if growth is rising while rates are rising, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see valuations go, go down. Um, I mean, the other thing we've, we've just taken a, a look more tactically and when, you know, I, I think there's been some concern about these higher interest rates leading to valuation compression. Um, and I, like, and, and I do think we'll see a little bit of that this year that's consistent with our price targets and, and things like that for the balance of the year. Um, but to see a really sharp move down in valuations, I mean, usually you need to have either a growth concern or some sort of policy concern, right? Growth concern, meaning we're going to have, you know, some sort of slowdown in the economy. I mean, that seems extremely unlikely, 
in in the next 12 months, certainly, just given how much stimulus is out there and and pent up demand and and the vaccine deployment. Uh, and then on the and on a policy side, um, you know, this is what I'm talking about here is when the Fed has, has you know maybe been very aggressive about raising interest rates or or uh, has raised rates too much. Um, and you know we're going to hear from uh, Jay Powell later today, um, but it seems pretty clear that tight monetary policy is is not in the cards anytime soon. So I think from a more also from a very tactical standpoint, I think the risk of a you know material what I'd say material fall in, in valuations looks pretty low uh, at the moment. Now that we have your macro, your policy views, that backdrop in mind, maybe we can pivot and talk about some implications to uh, specific areas or sectors of the equity markets. I know uh, Dan, growth names generally benefited greatly from the pandemic period we have been living through over the past year now. It's been a bit over a year at this point. So as we were talking about earlier, now that the economy is showing signs of improvement, rates are rising, what are the implications of that to some of these uh, growth names that have benefited from uh, the pandemic period. Well, then I think it's uh, it's pretty clear that uh, you know this imp- improvements in profits growth, which is is probably going to be the biggest pickup in profits growth in a decade, you know, since 2010 coming out of the financial crisis. I think it's it's pretty clear to me that that's bad for for you know these growth stocks that have done so well. You know, for for several reasons. I think first and foremost, um, you know, we, what we just talked about, right? You know, the valuations for the market are, have been getting higher. And while that may be okay for the overall market to stomach, given that it's coming with faster growth, I think within the market, you're, you're seeing, you know, the areas that are, are relatively, uh, you know, worse impacted by the rise in rates. Specifically, you know, there's kind of two camps. You know, one is sort of what I would call the bond proxies, which are these dividend, you know, low growth dividend stories like utilities would be the poster child. You know, people buy them for their dividend yields. And as interest rates go up, those dividend yields become less competitive. And so, you know, those stocks tend to underperform. And that's what you've seen. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have these high growth, high multiple stocks. And, you know, the higher the multiple, you know, the more, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, those stocks should be re-rated as interest rates rise. You know, essentially, by definition, if it's high multiple, it's discounting a lot of growth. Uh, far off into the future. And so as rates go up, you know, have to discount it at a higher rate and those, those, those future profits are worth less today. And so I think that's one of the, the, the negatives for growth. But even putting that aside, the interest rate story aside, I think that, you know, the history of cycles shows that, you know, when growth becomes scarce, when growth is slowing, as we saw last year, then growth does well because it becomes that scarce asset that everybody rushes to buy. You know, there becomes a scarcity in growth. But then as growth accelerates and the profits, uh, profit cycle broadens out and recovers, then investors can then be sort of choosy about, you know, how much they're willing to pay for that growth. And that's exactly what you've seen. And people talk about it as this recent phenomenon. This has been happening for the better part of the last year is that, you know, cyclical, cheaper cyclical stocks have been outperforming as they usually, you know, typically do. So nothing unusual there. And so to the extent that this is going to continue, yes, relative to a a normal cycle, I would say that there's a bit more visibility because of this sort of vaccine backdrop. So probably more than normal uh, amount of their recovery and profits growth has been priced in 
at this point in the recovery. But I still think that there's further to go, and that clearly, you know, should benefit you know more the the cheap cyclical stocks uh, at the at the cost or uh, for for some of their growth stocks. For the growth stocks, you know, the final thing I'll say there is, you know, for them and and for things like innovation and technology, you know, to their credit. They did so well last year. They were so resilient last year that they simply have no crisis from which to recover. So as you look through this profits recovery, you know, they're probably going to do okay in terms of profits growth, call it, you know, 15, 20%, which is nothing to sneeze at. But you could see these other deep cyclical sectors coming off of the low base of last year, put up numbers like 30%, 40%, 60%, 80% profits growth this year. And that's, where I think that you want to, where the bigger opportunity is. David, I'm curious to get your thoughts here. I know we've had this conversation about rotation patterns on prior podcasts. What are your thoughts on growth, David, relative to cyclicals as the economy is moving more closer towards reopening? Yeah, I, again, I think I think Dan stated it well. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, as we think about sort of the, um, you know, some of the key drivers, when we think about growth versus value, uh, I mean, it definitely looks like the 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 headwinds that have been weighing on growth just over the you know m- most prominently over the last month or so. I mean, it looks like those are going to continue. And we we talked about I mean we talked about interest rates, um, and and I and I do think that you know as as we were both saying, I, I think the the outlook in the very short term is uncertain, but the trend I think is still is still intact in terms of rates moving higher over time. That's going to be a headwind for valuations for growth companies, and then and then the other and 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 Dan mentioned this. Um, the other aspect here is is relative earnings growth, uh, and I think you know the other way we've been thinking about this is just looking at GDP growth. Uh, so GDP growth. In other words, overall economic growth, when it's you know above trend, that tends to benefit cyclical and value sectors more, right? So um, clearly, it's going to be above trend this year. I mean, we're going to have probably one of the fastest GDP growth rates in in decades, but that's probably going to continue also next year, and we're still going to be looking at faster than normal GDP growth. So we could be looking at at least a two-year period where earnings, as Dan was describing, earnings for some of the more cyclical value segments of the market are going to actually be outpacing. Sounds like an oxymoron, but they'll be outpacing the growth company, the earnings that the growth companies are going to be producing, simply because we're going to have very rapid GDP growth, you know, historically quite elevated GDP growth that should last for a period of time. And that will benefit the more cyclical value segments of the market more so than than the growth stocks. So, I yeah, I think we're pretty aligned here that the headwinds and and some of the the issues that growth stocks have been contending with over the last the last month that that has become you know very clear. It's it does seem like that those headwinds are going to persist for a period of time. Up until this point, I know our conversation has been very U.S. centric. I want to take a moment, maybe look elsewhere around the globe and get your thoughts, Dan, on emerging market equities. Are you seeing any pockets of opportunity out there? Any developing regions look attractive at this time from your view? Yeah, Dan, I think that, uh, you know, emerging markets look look very attractive to me here uh, for a host of different reasons. 
Uh, you know, one, if you just think about what's happening right now is that you've had, you know, the dominant leadership over the past decade, whether it be the U.S. specifically or, or you know, technology names or U.S. large cap growth names, whatever uh, you want to look at as the dominant leadership over the past decade, you know, I think there's opportunities for that to start to shift. And so I think that, you know, EM, you know, has basically underperformed uh, over that over the last decade, yet the, the backdrop, we're setting the backdrop for, uh, you know, some, some strong underlying fundamentals for EM. Specifically, you know, we're going to see, you know, the synchronized global uplift and growth here uh, as the world gets vaccinated and recovers. And, you know, what's, what area of the world is more leveraged to global growth than EM? And, and, and as Dan and, and, and I have both mentioned, you know, that growth is likely to come with, with higher inflation, right? So I think that... You're, you're setting up for being able to buy, you know, fundamentally, you know, sound and attractive, you know, areas of the market that are out of favor and cheaper uh, that are going to put up very attractive growth. Uh, you know, I think EM sits in sort of the sweet spot there. Now, specifically within EM, you know, for until a few months ago, you know, our biggest position by far, you know, was was a big overweight in China. Um, and, and China was sort of the defensive, you know, story of last year, one of the best performing markets of last year. You know, we've actually sort of shifted our, our exposure within emerging markets to, to own more of the ex-China broad emerging markets because those are the areas, you know, kind of alluding to what I mentioned about tech last year. You know, China did so well last year that there's just less runway for the recovery this year. I think that's the story for the rest of EM. Uh, emerging markets this year. So we've broadened out and sort of taken a lot of our China holdings and put it into the rest of the emerging markets uh, with somewhat of a focus on, you know, Latin America, um, because I think that there's a, there's a tremendous amount of runway for them to improve uh, coming off of this, the, the low base. And they're going to benefit from, you know, this, this, you know, they're specifically, you know, geared toward, you know, inflation and commodity prices as well as global growth. So, you know, Broadly, we like emerging markets, but specifically, you know, I would be rotating uh, sort of away from China, which was the safe haven of last year, or more uh, the the winners of this this the next coming couple of years. David, I'm curious to get your views on emerging market equities. I will say on our sister podcast, Top of the Morning, over the past couple of weeks, I've spoken with some of your colleagues about China specifically as part of the CIO's Investing in China publication, which is now available on UBS.com forward slash CIO. But I would be curious to hear your thoughts, David. Yeah, happy happy to, Dan. Uh, again, you're going to hear similar rationale from me, what you just heard from Dan. Um yeah, look, I think I, I think emerging markets more broadly, I, I would fully agree. I, I think it makes sense here. I mean, they are the, the cyclical part of the global uh, economy and, and the global equity markets. And, uh, you know, we're just talking about taking more cyclical risk in general. Um, you know, we do think the dollar will likely weaken. You know, like I have to say, I mean, you know, you know we're watching that, that aspect of this call closely. I mean, if the if interest rates continue to to rise uh, here in the U.S., you know that that could change the story a little bit on the currency side. But but for but for now, we think that there's still good reasons why the U.S. dollar will continue to weaken a little bit. Uh, higher commodity prices also benefit EM, so and which we think will continue. Um, you know, putting it all together, I, I think you're just going to see faster earnings growth coming from this region. 
you know, well over 30% for this year, which should outpace, I mean, certainly outpace developed markets broadly, and it should probably outpace the U.S. as well. Um, you know, we, within the region, we, I would say we have a little bit of a barbell. Uh, so we do like Latin America, Russia, um, you know, some of the more, you know, the really cyclical parts of, of emerging markets, but we also like China as well. Um, and, you know, as you're pointing out, Dan Cassidy, that there, there are, you know, we think there are some really interesting long-term drivers um, in China for investors. And, you know, some of the, the commentary that you were highlighting, Dan, that we've been talking about around China is also, you know, t- thinking about this from a strategic perspective and a longer-term perspective as well, in the sense that, you know, it's become the, the opportunity set in China for investors has become really large. It, it, it's going to likely continue to grow. And for many, many global investors, they're just under allocated relative to to the size of these markets and certainly the size of which they will likely become over the next couple of decades. So, you know, that, that's also, I think, a really important point. It really depends also on your starting point here. And for many investors, you know, you know, most when we look at portfolios, we don't see too many people being over allocated to China, uh, and and that and the size of China is just going to continue to grow uh, in relative size, relative size, relative other markets. And we think it's important to to spend some time to make make sure you have the the proper allocation there from a strategic perspective. I know at this point we're beginning to come to the end of our time together. And I will say, Dan, David, it has been a very productive and wide-ranging conversation. So thank you very much for the insights you've shared with our listeners up until this point. Maybe as a closing couple of points, we can combine these two. And David, what we'll do is we'll provide our guest, Dan Suzuki, with the final word. But in terms of risks, we've hit on inflation risk, policy risk. We've spoken about the pandemic, but anything else that we haven't covered that might keep you up at night that you're monitoring? And then in terms of positioning, David, within equities, uh, can you walk us through your current thinking there? What are you recommending? Sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the risks you just mentioned, Dan, are, are really still the most important. I mean, getting out of this pandemic, first and foremost, that remains the foundational issue that the markets have been, and the economy is contending with. Um, then there's, you know, policy. I, I mean, I, you know, to the extent we get further, we could have an infrastructure deal later on. I, I mean, you know, and making sure that the policymakers respond appropriately to any developments in the economy. Uh, and obviously, you know, what the Fed is doing is, is probably going to become a little bit more important as we move forward when do they start winding down their supports? Is it done prematurely? Is it done, you know, is the timing right on that? Uh, and, and, and as we mentioned earlier, we'll get a little bit more color from Powell uh, later today. Um, but yeah, I, I think inflation, you know, inflation is always sort of the existential risk uh, because in the sense that if inflation does uh, become problematic, that that will prompt the Fed to respond, and that typically is what causes recessions. I, I think we're still quite a long ways away from that point, but um, but you know, we've just talking about sort of the unprecedented nature of this business cycle, as well as the government response to it. So you know, we have to we have to watch the inflation 
story very very closely. And then in terms of positioning, you know, we 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 would prefer we prefer more cyclical areas of the of the U.S. equity market and the global equity market. We talked about emerging markets. We have a, a preference there. Within the U.S., we like small and mid versus large. And then within sectors, we prefer some of the more cyclical areas, uh, financials, energy, consumer discretionary, industrials. The one uh, defensive that we like is healthcare, where we just think valuations are, 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 too, are too low at this point. Uh, so that's how we'd be positioned, Dan. Thank you, David. And then, Dan, same set of questions to you. Anything in the way of risk that maybe we've already covered that you'd like to reemphasize or anything we haven't covered that remains on your radar? And then in terms of positioning, what looks most attractive to you within equities right now? Yeah, Dan, I think um, risk depends on uh, really on what you own. You know, if you're sitting on a ton of bonds and high multiple tech stocks, then, yeah, inflation is going to be a risk and a concern. Uh, for you, but if you if you own you know dirty cyclicals, commodity producers, and emerging markets, you know inflation is probably less of a risk. You know for us, uh, you know given that it's a very sentiment-driven market, you know there's a lot of impact you know from small changes in sentiment or small moves in fundamentals. So you know in terms of sentiment, I think the market is going to you know gyrate a lot around uh, as David mentioned, you know news around uh, you know what the Fed's going to do and, and stimulus. But ultimately, you know, what I'm most concerned about is eventual slowing of liquidity and of profit, profits growth. And I think that we have some time um, before we get to that point. But, you know, as, as, as you get later in this year, there are going to be things to keep an eye on, right? I mean, you know, at some point, the, the stimulus is going to hit its peak and it'll still be there, but it'll start to slow. You know, people will start focusing more on tax increases. We will start to, you know, anniversary, you know, the you know, the, the strong growth numbers. And so you'll, you'll, you'll start to pile on more things that you need to monitor that could, you know, ultimately result in, in, in a slowdown in liquidity uh, or profits growth. So we're going to keep, be keeping an eye on all those things. In terms of the way we're positioned, I mean, it's probably pretty clear from all the comments uh, we've already made, and it's very similar to what David mentioned. You know, we, we have been in continued to be positioned exactly how we tell investors that they should always be positioned in a profits recovery. So we own small caps, we own value, you know, deep cyclicals, emerging markets, credit, and we have an extra emphasis right now on, you know, rates going higher and inflation going higher. So, you know, obviously we're underweight bonds, we're underweight duration, and we're overweight to things that should benefit from inflation. So, you know, that's the way uh, we we think uh, it will serve uh, portfolios best. And I think that aligns well with, with David's comments as well. Dan and David, thank you for covering all of the ground that you did with our listeners today. Of course, there is much more else we could have covered, so perhaps we can look forward to a follow-up conversation at some point this year. But thank you again for your time, insights, and for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for having me as well. And again, today we have been joined by Head of Equities Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, David Lefkowitz, as well as Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer with Richard Bernstein Advisors, or RBA. And as a reminder to our listeners, the UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. You can also visit UBS.com forward slash podcasts to view the entire podcast offering. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.